0: Unions maintain their grip on the Democratic Party, and the disinformation sleuthing industry takes it on the chin. We will discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today, but don't fret, he will be back next week. In the meantime, we are joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a national review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made in Cookware, Bowlin Branch, and Express VPN. More on them in a second. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. No joke, it's important and it helps the show, and it's your way to show you care. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Pennsylvania governor, Democratic governor, Josh Shapiro, he's kind of distinguished himself as a Democrat in a purple state with a you know, slightly sizable but Trumpy minority of right-leaning voters. But nevertheless, it's a northeastern state with a Democratic majority. But he's managed to buck progressives in the campaign trail and even in his governance, ending degree requirements, for example, for most government jobs, ordering state employees back to the office after COVID, and even on the campaign trail, expressing support for school vouchers and lifeline scholarships. But this week, the progressives managed to force... Josh Shapiro, back into his corner. When push came to shove, he caved to the teachers' unions, denounced a school choice program by vetoing it, uh, saying he supported it, but vetoing it nonetheless. So, Michael, uh, this is what it means to be a Democrat, right? After the pandemic, it's all its attendant horrors, and even the backlash in the Mid-Atlantic that we saw in 2021 uh, in New Jersey, for example, where there was a, a big outpouring of hostility to the COVID regime and schools and their conduct during the pandemic played a big part in that. But bowing to the teachers union is still the price of admission into the big game in democratic politics now.
1: You know, I'd like to think it isn't anymore. But I mean, the, these actions belie it. I mean, we've seen that uh, we've seen so much success on the Republican side by taking on teachers unions, which which we didn't necessarily see in the 30 years uh, ...previous to COVID, right? We didn't... <clears throat> but, you know, during the pandemic, we saw uh, Glenn Yonkin ride to victory, arguably on popular dissatisfaction with COVID restrictions on schools and the way the teachers' unions were behaving in Virginia. I think a huge part of Ron DeSantis' uh, stonking re-election res- result was the way he took the pandemic emergency powers to keep schools as open and as normal as possible across the state. Uh, But yet we, we don't see Democrats defecting in a serious way from, from the teachers unions, even though there's obviously this uh, coalition of parents who have been alienated from their local, local teachers. Like it used to be very much, you would see poll results showing just like in Congress that uh, people hated Congress generally but they liked their, their congressman okay. And the same way you used to see school polling showing, you know, public schools aren't doing the job, they're, they're failing, that's the popular opinion. But I like my school and I like the teachers. Well, that, that, it seemed like that was starting to be shaken up in the last couple of years until now. Um, so the very fact that Randy Weingarten has, has, has seen her, her career. Blossom in the years since since COVID is another worrying sign that um, at least the Democratic Party, its constituency is, is disconnected from this. You know what seemed like popular anger that was transforming the right and giving it an advantage on education. Well,
0: so you think it's the popular anger is illusory, or there's just a gun to the party's head?
1: I think there's a gun to the party's head. I mean, listen, uh, teachers' unions are uh, important a vector for turnout especially in off-year elections um you know you know it is an important interest group for democrats uh and a loyal one and you know it just feels like there's a gun to their head but the th- the thing is one way to get rid of that gun to your head is of course to diso- you know to to create new conditions with an act of major disobedience right like that that's one way to relieve the pressure on yourself when um, you have a, an interest group that is holding you hostage and the commonweal hostage
0: well that's madeline so that's what's interesting about this is Shapiro's in the short time in office has accumulated a fair amount of political capital he's a pretty popular governor I think he owes a lot more of that to general competence keeping the lights on, doing the stuff that government knows how to do, like, say, fixing a road, rather than what they don't know how to do, like ending bigotry in men's hearts. But does this hurt him? Does this hurt Shapiro? Or is this sizable middle willing to just cast off school choice in favor of other more tangible benefits of good governance?
2: Well, I'm inclined to think that it always hurts uh, politicians when they fail to follow through on their promises, when the reason for that is just their own political ambition. I think what makes this so disappointing is in 2022, the, uh, school choice was a big part of his campaign. He campaigned as a as a different kind of Democrat, you know, somebody who wouldn't be captive to the progressive wing, who would focus on everyday issues, education being a main one that cuts across party lines. And, um, you know, he was also running against a, a, a Republican who was, who was pushing Trump's lies. So he he really did come out looking like a... Moderate that uh, that could um, garner a lot of bipartisan support. So this is embarrassing in that regard. It's also embarrassing because he is clearly a, a true believer in school choice. This was uh, a scholarship plan that was going to help. Like tons of kids who were in really difficult uh positions get them into social mobility. it was a what a hundred million dollar scholarship plan um helping lower income students and it was very popular, you know polling shows that it was over sixty percent of Pennsylvania residents um supporting these types of vouchers so I do think it I do think it hurts him um and I also think that you know the reason he sold out is transparently to do with his own political ambitions. I mean, his excuse about the, the the Democratic legislature doesn't really make sense because he only really needed to swing one or two votes. Um, and this is clearly much more to do with the teacher unions.
0: So Charlie, following up on that, assuming that, this, that Maddie's right, this does at least ding the armor a little bit. Pennsylvania's Republican Party, like Georgia, Arizona, take your pick, is so besotted with intra-tribal warfare that it's Sees a lot more enemies to its right than its left, but Doug Mastriano has taken a back seat this year. Former gubernatorial nominee, uh, his opponent to whom he uh, or who he uh, defeated very narrowly in 2022, Dave McCormick, is raising funds. Looks like he's set to challenge Bob Casey for the Senate next year. It'll be a nationalized race for the Senate in a general election year, so local dynamics will be kind of muted. This will hurt Shapiro or help him, and this will hurt Dave McCormick
3: or help him. I think it will marginally hurt Shapiro. I don't think this is going to be dispositive because Shapiro has developed a reputation as a moderate. The Republican Party's brand in Pennsylvania is still damaged. And there are upsides still for the Democrats in hewing to the teachers union line, which is why they do it. This has long been of great interest to me. The Democratic Party and the progressive movement in general has a theory of the right that I think is largely wrong, but that is coherent. And that is that those of us who believe in, say, free markets do so because we are either useful idiots or we've been bought off. That Republicans in their hearts know deep down that the policies that they advance are not good for everyone, but that they are good for Exxon. Exxon funds campaigns, and so Republicans fall into line. I don't think that's true, although, of course, there are some circumstances in which that is true, and there were circumstances a long time ago when that was certainly true. The original Progressive Era critiques of the relationship between big business and politics had something to them. The reason this interests me so much is that that argument perfectly applies to the Democratic Party and teachers unions. The teachers unions are indefensible in their conduct and they were indefensible prior to COVID. COVID laid it bare. And yet, because he has greater ambitions and because he wishes to get along with his own party for the rest of his term, and I imagine he hopes to be reelected, Shapiro has made the rational decision, not a good decision, not a decision that I think advances education in Pennsylvania, but the rational political decision that he is not going to buck the party on this one, especially when it is so closely divided. That is unforgivable, uh, but it makes sense given how closely glued to the Democratic Party infrastructure the teachers' unions have become.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, For the most part, my assumption is that Democrats are hostage to the shadows on the cave wall, and one of those shadows has taken the terrifying form of Randy Weingarten. Um, But the teachers' unions uh, raise less than they did, organize less than they did, and it'll take some time, but a political shock you would think would come that would eventually convince them to divorce themselves in much the same way they did from SEIU and ACORN when those groups became... Uh, More politically disadvantageous to associate yourself from. But let's take a quick break and hear from our first sponsor today, Made In Cookware. Made In has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they've found that people consistently say two things about Made In cookware they can feel the difference when using Made In products, and they can taste the difference in their cooking. It is a product of multi generational craftsmanship. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supplies, Made In works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made In's award-winning nonstick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Made In's stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention. Making for even heat distribution. Made In's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame. Listeners to this podcast will get 10% off full priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit slash editors. That's slash editors. Editors. So on Tuesday, Federal Judge Terry Doughty issued a sweeping nationwide injunction, barring all federal entities and all executive agencies from even corresponding with social media firms for quote the purposes of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing any manner in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. It's a really broad ruling, and some of the legal commentators have suggested that it's complicated, the injunction is too broad, uh, it would perhaps even bar uh, executive agencies from criticizing social media firms in uh, public comment periods, for example. So I'm persuaded that it might not survive scrutiny when it gets to the appeal at a higher level. But this ruling does seem to have squared the circle on the merits. It found that the federal government had, quote, extensive contact with social media companies via emails, phone calls, and in-person meetings. Between that and the stick of, quote, public threats and tense relations between the Biden White House and social media giants, the administration established a, quote, efficient report and censor relationship. Moreover, the finding demonstrated, it found that the plaintiffs had demonstrated harm, a direct link between the censorship decisions and the government's actions, and the result was viewpoint discrimination resulting from the executive branch's actions. It is clearly, in that sense, unconstitutional. And the goal, as we all know, because we all lived through it, was to limit the public's access to what the White House deemed dangerous thought. That seems pretty cut and dry, Charlie. What are your thoughts on the legal merits of this case and the critics' claims that it overreaches?
3: I think we need to separate out A whole bunch of concepts here. So, the first question is whether or not the government should be doing this on the merits, and the answer is obviously it should not. There are bills before Congress, one of them penned by Marco Rubio, either to prohibit governments from talking to social media companies and requesting that they police so called misinformation or remove. First Amendment-protected content they happen to dislike, or that if they're going to do that, they have to disclose it. I think those are good bills. They should be passed immediately, and I'm not persuaded by those who say this would hamper the national security state. There are provisions in all of them that deal with that, probably that would be abused in the other direction, if we're honest. Then there's the question of whether or not there is a limit to what the Federal government or a state government can do in using other means to try to suppress First Amendment protected speech? And the answer there is obviously yes. This is a complicated area, but the courts have ruled for a long, long time that governments cannot use private means to achieve public ends that violate the Constitution. Just as, for example, if the federal government is prohibited from imposing a massive tax on newspapers to stop them publishing or making each bullet $900 to try to undermine the Second Amendment. So there are things that the government cannot do uh, when it comes to speech. They cannot subordinate newspapers or social media networks or movie production companies to do what they would not be able to do directly with with legislation. Uh, whether this case falls within those, I'm not entirely sure. I think it probably is overbroad. I will not pretend to know exactly where the line is. Um, so maybe this you can is help an me work something out of- then. Um,
0: just the nature of the debate in the judiciary over coercion and what constitutes coercion. So you're more an expert than this uh, on this subject than I am. Uh, my instinct is that when in instance, many, many of the people who objected to this ruling say the government isn't censoring anything or even asking people to censor anything. It's making polite suggestions. But those polite suggestions come from an entity with the legal monopoly on the use of force, which carries extra weight. And my understanding is the idea of coercion in the public when it comes from the public sector is it doesn't have to be mandatory. And it, it doesn't, at least according to the jurisprudence authored by liberal justices over the last several decades doesn't have to be mandatory it doesn't have to be uh it doesn't have to be overt but even the existence of a publicly supportive alternative is coercive and the conservative justices argued against this but this is not their standard to defend and it's now being adopted (coughs) to some extent by doherty no
3: yes and that's why i think that this is complicated the argument that you've just outlined is in fact a long-standing progressive argument the underlying conception being that you cannot fail to take into account power dynamics when discussing government action. So in, for example, our union legislation or our union jurisprudence, we have standing in our statute books, a bunch of laws that Ostensibly violate the First Amendment, but are allowed to stand because they are supposed to address the imbalance in power between the employer and the employee. Uh, one of the most famous examples of that recently uh, came when Ben Dominic of the Federalist was hauled before a judge to explain why he had said that he would send anyone who unionized at the Federalist to the salt mines. Now, that seems to be First Amendment protected speech. I believe it to be First Amendment protected speech, uh, but. The last 50 years' worth of discussion has said no, because he's in charge and the people below him might take him seriously, and therefore the speech can be regulated. Well, this works the other way around, in theory. Sure, the government has First Amendment uh, rights as well. Joe Biden is protected by the First Amendment. He's allowed to stand up and argue for policies or against people, for example, his opponents. But uh, he also carries with him authority the same people who might well reach out to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram are the people who are in charge of the Internal Revenue Service in the Department of Justice, who oversee merger requests, who deal with regulation, who run the agencies that oversee the Internet. And the argument is that after a certain point, it becomes coercive to use the same authority to make requests that you would like those to whom you are speaking to adopt voluntarily. As I say, I don't know where that line is. I do know that there is a lot of precedent, and this is not just from left-leaning jurists, there is a lot of precedent that the government may not use other means, alternative means, proxy means, to do uh, by stealth uh, or by implication, what it could not do through legislation or executive action. And somewhere in uh, this line um, is is a reasonable answer. Whether this case is it, I just don't know. So, Michael, you can answer that question if you like, but I want <clears throat> to pose
0: to you some of the objections that we saw from on procedural grounds from Lawrence Tribe and Leah Littman to constitutional legal experts. The standing here is just, it's absurd. There's no standing. This nationwide injunction, ah, it's its so overbroad. Well, as uh, my friend over at the Commentary Podcast, Matthew Continetti, said, you live by the nationwide injunction, you die by the nationwide injunction. Yeah. In the Trump years, nationwide injunctions and really broad interpretations of standing were sufficient to halt Trump-era initiatives from the travel ban to the emergency declaration to build the wall to even his 2020 challenges. So as Mitt Romney would
1: say, sauce for the goose, Right. Right, well, no, this is something I think I've predicted and others have predicted on this podcast during the Trump years, that this would become a tool that conservative jurists would, would try on their own uh, time. And so it's come to pass. Um, I agree with both you and, and Charlie in, in confessing some you know, caution that this might be an overbroad ruling. Um, I like the way Charlie laid Laid things out um, in, in in almost all the specifics, and yes, I suppose that America lacking a decent mob that would know how to deal with people <laughs> who tolerate pornography but not the wrong opinion on masks on social media, that we should turn to the lawyers and the courts in in instead of uh, a a good right righteous mob mob. Um, so I listen. This this is a question that had to be settled. The political dynamics of it have been very clear. I mean, very, very clear for a long time. You know, and I've written about this a lot. Uh, Niall Ferguson, the historian, has written about this, which was, you know, in 2012, when people believed that social media had been key to Barack Obama's re-election victory, it was freedom for social media. It was keep doing what you're doing. We love you. Um, there's no problem here in 2016, that all changed and it was because of Brexit and Trump and because it was found out that boomers can use Facebook too. Um, and they did. And ever since then, it's been an attempt to basically, you know, uh, stifle conservative speech on social media platforms based on this idea that I guess people are giving each other social proof of these abhorrent views that are dangerous views. Like I I'm going to vote this way in the next democratic contest that determines uh, the fate of my country. Um, I I think the, the power to coerce has been uh, the, the, I think it's very obvious that the social media companies View the government as a coercive threat to them, and are responding very, very. Uh, how do we? How do you? How do you say it? Submissively to every government suggestion of um, censorship, and we, we've seen tons of evidence of this. We've seen in the Twitter files, um, the Twitter executives in the past saying. The the government's request here is total BS. We know it's untrue, but geez, we better think about complying with it anyway because well, gee, it's the government uh, asking us to do this. So uh, yeah, this is something that needs to be uh, sorted out in a court, and I'm glad that at least one judge is throwing a spear in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah, Madeline Michael got into it a little bit, and we can we're just we have no choice but to gloss over the actual evidence that was marshaled in this case, that suggests that the heavy hand of the state was leaning on these companies to uh, censor information they didn't like. But the evidence is pretty clear, and it corresponds with our own experience over the course of the last uh, three and a half, four years. The disinformation industry's objections to this ruling seem increasingly predicated on appeals to their own authority. And the New York Times included an admission against interest that I, I wrote about when they Talked about how this ruling will dissuade scholars and donors from engaging in disinformation research. I mean, it's literally an appeal to uh, just the perpetuation of the sinecure for themselves. Are they the last people to realize that the disinformation business has squandered its own credibility?
2: Yeah, so I think one aspect of this uh, is seeing it as part of a wider resistance to changes in political precedent that happened during the pandemic. So this wasn't just in the United States. This was Across Western Europe, you saw government t- taking liberties um, with with long held established uh, freedoms that they wouldn't in ordinary times. So, you know, we, we saw that obviously with lockdowns, but we also saw it with speech. And I think one thing that emerges from this case is the ways in which a medical emergency was seen as licensed to cut down on, you know, put. Pull, pull back all this speech that was spreading this harmful health disinformation. And that can be anything from vaccine hesitancy to, you know, information about COVID that the government disagreed with. Maybe some of it was wrong, but really b- before the pandemic, it was pretty clear what the standards were. The standards were, um, yes, federal agencies and tech giants worked together uh, to take action against criminal um, activity. So uh, things really relating to child abuse or human trafficking, Um, or or perhaps even terrorism, so the Islamic State and other terrorist groups. But it it didn't really just uh, extend to people with wacky opinions or people with just dissenting opinions, frankly. And I think one thing that the judge made clear um, was that that basically the censorship alleged in the case exclusively, or at least almost exclusively, targeted conservative speech and I think that the, the resistance to, to encroachments that do disproportionately affect um, conservatives, be it parental rights or, or speech rights, is, is really um, emboldened since, since uh, we've become more aware of what exactly was going on during the pandemic. And I see, I don't, I can't really speak to the legal merits of the case, but I see this as part of that broader resistance to that.
0: Okay, well, without speaking to the legal merits will be difficult for this exit question, but I'm going to pose the exit question anyway. Let's. It's going to be appealed. Um, Justice Department is appealing it. Let's look beyond the Fifth Circuit, because that's kind of a friendly venue, all the way to the Supreme Court. This decision is upheld on the merits for the most part, by and large, let's say. Yes or no? Charlie?
3: Oof, I don't know. I am skeptical... I think it is entirely possible that the Supreme Court will distinguish sharply between the speech that encourages the suppression of First Amendment speech and the rest. I think it is more likely, in fact, that they will not uphold this. And I think as a result, write your congressman. This is a matter that Congress can very clearly resolve. A bill that forces the executive branch and social media companies on pain of fines or worse to disclose any communications that they have would be constitutional and difficult to oppose. I would not expect the Supreme Court to get involved here. And if it does, I'm skeptical that it will yield a ruling that the plaintiffs are looking for.
1: Michael. Uh, I I agree with Charlie. I think it's unlikely it's going to be upheld in full in the long run. Uh, where I, I disagree with Charlie. I, Congress should, of course, legislate uh, to restrict uh, and define how government and can interact with social media companies and and limit the executive branch's power here but i just i don't trust congress to do this i mean congress just its typical mode now is to just throw off responsibility to the executive and say well you know in an emergency in war uh you know in in a trade dispute in in any situation i don't really want to think about I'm just going to defer to whatever the secretary of whatever says. And um, so I'm a little bit... Congress should have the tools to do this, but I just am doubtful they'll exercise them responsibly. Madeline?
2: Um, I'm going to say no, uh, like with the caveat that I'm I'm not really all that familiar with the... The legalities of it, but um, I'm going to say no, just because I think it was overbroadened. That was clear just by the way in which the judge wrote it as you know the most important um, free speech case in, in history, if the allegations hold, and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I think I tend to agree. there are too many technical elements here that will allow a court that wants to to vacate the decision. but if they looked past those and got to the merits, I think it'd be difficult to reach another conclusion than this judge, but move on. Let's take another break, hear from our (laughs) next sponsor, Bolin Branch, take it away, Charlie.
3: Well, as you know, I sleep on Bolin Branch sheets. I spend a great deal of time on Bolin Branch sheets and that's because they are unlike other bedding, which is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides and toxic dyes. Bolin Branch has changed the standard for good, they make the softest, most luxurious sheets without any of those horrible chemicals. They use the finest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family at home. And they have a natural unmatched softness. They get softer with every single wash. Now, as I've been reading this ad over the years, the reviews have got better and better and more numerous These sheets used to be so luxurious that they were loved by three U.S. presidents. They are now so luxurious they're loved by four U.S. presidents. And who knows? Maybe in a couple of years, that number will have jumped up to five. The reviews have increased, too. There were over 10,000 reviews last year. Now there are over 11,000 reviews. And that is because they are buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. And they're perfect for warmer weather, which is, of course of great import to me and the many other sleepers who live in a hot climate, but also those who live in cold climates, the millions of sleepers, irrespective of where they live, who love ball and branch sheets, which come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to California king. They are designed to fit the deepest of mattresses not just the biggest. They're labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever, especially if, like me, you're a bit of a moron when it comes to laundry. And Boll Branch offers a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. And the best news of all is that you can get 15% off your first order if you use the promo code EDITORS15, at Ball and Branch's website, ballandbranch.com. That's B O L L A N D branch.com. The promo code is editors15. Exclusions apply. See site for details. All right. So
0: it's been a terribly slow news week. So we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to throw some topics at you and we're going to do a lightning round. Of brilliant punditry really fast on a variety of subjects. First, cocaine in the White House. Initially, The White House revealed, inexplicably, but they decided to reveal it, that a bag of cocaine was discovered in a high-traffic area of the White House, implying that a guest had simply wandered into the most secure place in the United States with a Schedule 1 substance and got it past security and then just forgot about it, which is not the sort of thing you do if you're a cocaine addict. But now they say that it was a little bit different. It was a slightly more secure area of the West Wing, but it's still no big deal. It's a it's only a big deal because the White House has made it a big deal, which is its own mystery. But everybody, your thoughts on if this is in fact a really big deal and how long it'll take before the White House admits it's another of Hunter Biden's perfectly relatable foibles. Maddie. <laughs>
2: um, is it a big deal? Well, as as you rightly noted, the more the stranger thing about this is the decision to make it publicly known. I mean, I, th- I think it's it would be perfectly believable that there are people in the White House using cocaine. I mean, it's a stimulant and it's a high-paced environment, so you can see you can see the the appeal um, that somebody would be that careless. Um, I mean, there are people who are very careless. Who, who I think you've just mentioned one of them. <laughs> so there's maybe a question mark over that. But um, yeah, I don't really think it's a massive deal, but it is very strange. And, uh, you know, I think, was it not a slow news week, we might not be quite so interested in it.
0: Uh, Charlie, is this a big deal? Is the White House only making it a big deal? Or is it a genuinely big deal? And is it Hunter Biden?
3: (laughs) Well, it is a funny deal. Uh, It's a funny deal in light of all of the other news about Hunter Biden. I suspect if it weren't for the... Hunter Biden saga, then this would be much less big a story, but we have a guy who has reportedly been living in the White House, who has a drug problem, who is known to use cocaine, who is in fact being prosecuted, albeit with a sweetheart deal in part because of his drug use. So, yeah, this is this is a funny story. No, if Hunter Biden weren't around, it wouldn't be quite as funny a story. Is this Hunter Biden? I have absolutely no idea. Ooh, Michael.
0: Speculate wildly. Uh,
1: it's, a big, uh, it's a big deal because our president isn't reliable to distinguish cocaine from talcum powder and, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know you don't want to leave anything that dangerous lying around I mean my hope for it was that you know we'd find out it was like Kamala Harris's (laughs) she'd play it off as a joke then Tulsi Gabbard would show up and remind how many people she put in jail for life for possession of the substance Um, it would
3: explain a lot about Kamala Harris
1: if that were her cocaine (laughs) Um, as, as for the hunter angle like yeah, it could be his, of course. Like, And, of course, if you're not thinking that, you don't consume news where there have been about, you know, 30,000 leaked pictures of Hunter Biden doing drugs of various sorts. I mean, in fact, the only reason I suspect it's not Hunter Biden's is because it's not a hard enough drug for him. I mean, we've seen him smoke crack. Uh, like, I would expect, like, a crystal meth pipe or something. Um, you know, cocaine seems like light uh getting off light here.
0: It, it, I can't be Kamala because she has too languid of a demeanor. Like peyote is yeah, more her thing. It's not a stu- yeah, yeah. But also the, you know, the uninitiated may not know, but there's a healthy level of paranoia associated with substance abuse like these. So that you have to have a level of comfort with your surroundings to not know where your cocaine is at any given moment. Uh, so the idea that a, a visitor just sort of dropped this off accidentally is profoundly implausible. Moving on. Number two in the lightning round. We had news via ABC News, big breaking story, actually, and kind of a big deal, uh, that they reported in April a delegation of uh, individuals with connections past or present to the Council on Foreign Relations, including outgoing President Richard Haas, who's a fixture on uh, Morning Joe, for example. I sat down with him. I can't tell you how many times all of whom have close ties to the White House. They were dispatched to uh, meet on the sidelines in April in New York City with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to discuss the war and Russia's terms for peace. And apparently, this meeting came to nothing, maybe because we know what Russia's terms for peace are. They're hardly unknowable, and they're determined by the battle space, not by the West, which often overestimates its influence on foreign affairs outside its ambit. But the U.S. Sanctions, the US Treasury Department sanctions Lavrov. Biden has called... Vladimir Putin, a war criminal, and Lavrov is one of his longest-serving deputies, and the president has said nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. What does this say about those commitments and how the Biden White House views this war as a political issue heading into 2024, Michael?
1: um, It's hard to know uh, exactly. I mean, it's not, you know, such communications are not unthinkable. Especially, uh, that was a time period when it was the White House and other outlets were making it very clear that the spring offensive, you know, might not be everything that you're hoping it might be. It might not go as well or happen as soon as you think it's going to happen. Um, you know that there were doubts about Ukraine's ability to um, uh, make significant. Territorial gains, and so of course, if the, if that's the case, and if it looks like what is happening now is going to be a long stalemate, of course it makes sense actually to begin at least looking for feelers, uh, you know, on, on what would be uh, a final settlement, because that's what we all expect. I think is that this will go to, to go to a negotiating table eventually. Um, you know, even if it's just to find out that if, that the Russians are committed to uh, more gains through long war of attrition. Uh, you know that's something that you know, you have to find out yourself when uh, diplomatic ties are so cut off as they have been, and they have been for years since the Trump administration. Uh, so I, I don't know what it tells me about the the politics of the war among Democrats. It's still a a popular war. We we've seen. We've even seen some indication in polls that Americans are ticking up in support of Ukraine in in one recent poll. Um, so I, I I don't know what the politics are, but I, I all I know is it makes a little bit of sense when you've limited the number of weapons you're going to send. You're you're basically exhausted on that front, and you don't see uh, a, a great deal of hope for a breakthrough. Madeline, what does this say about how the Biden White House views the war heading into
0: 2024?
2: Um, I really don't know. I'm gonna am se- gonna set this one. I want to hear s- from I'm Noah. Sorry, this is this is not an area of uh, of my expertise. So I'm I'm gonna break all rules and punditry and say it pass.
0: <laughs> it's you still get a pass. Still <laughs> brilliant punditry, Charlie. You want to hear from me? before i
3: do because i think you have much more to say on this than i do and you are much more clued
1: in
0: well michael's not wrong and then um nbc news report makes it clear two track
1: two track uh, by the way no we keep delaying the big the big fight that the listeners won. It.
0: we have had <laughs> it. i know i know
1: it's just not know, what everybody wants from
0: us i don't know what they want from us blood sport <laughs> um two track is nothing special the nbc news report makes that clear we have uh Two-track relationships, which just refers to talking about other things other than the the crisis that has prevented you from having normal diplomatic relations. So, like, we, have, we don't have really healthy diplomatic relations with Iran, but we talk to them about prisoner exchanges and stuff like that. That's two-track. Nothing special. What this tells me about how the Biden White House views this conflict is they're profoundly uncomfortable with it. They thought the withdrawal from Afghanistan would be a profound victory for this administration that they could run on in 2024 as a peacemaker, and this has totally scuttled that. Not just because there are uh, links, I believe, that can be established by a clever campaigner between the invasion of Ukraine and America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. And also that the Biden administration wanted to campaign on placidity abroad that he had brought to bear. And now he doesn't get to do that. And the administration is very uncomfortable with it. That's my thought. Charlie, do you have anything to add to that? I don't. Very good. My lightning round is far more lightning (laughs) than I wanted it to be. (laughs) So there's a last one for you And I didn't tell anybody this one ahead of time Because I wanted it to really sting Um, Ron DeSantis has released fundraising numbers For Q2 They are spectacular He raised $20 million for his campaign Over and above uh, What Donald Trump has raised And anybody else in the race for that matter And in fact I think that rivals records For a fundraising quarter $110 million for his PAC mostly from transfer funds, a lot from high dollar donors. There are no limits there. The fundraising rules are complicated. You can raise as a candidate a certain amount for a general and a primary, and you can only raise that much. No limits for PACs, so they get a lot more money. But let's look back in history to this this point, Q2, 2015. Jeb Bush launches in mid-June. Raises $11 million for his campaign, $100 million for Right to Rise, twice the haul that has ever been raised before an incredibly intimidating money machine. But there was no sizzle to that stake. Is Ron DeSantis, the new Jeb. Charlie.
3: I think that the only useful conclusion that we can draw is that money does not maketh the man. But that is not the same thing as saying that money cannot make it the man, and it's not the same thing as saying that money doesn't tell us something interesting about the man. Jeb Bush was in a different position than Ron DeSantis. A lot of conservatives say Jeb Bush was terrible and Ron DeSantis is good. I think that's completely wrong. I think Jeb Bush was a fantastic governor of Florida, but he hadn't been a fantastic governor of Florida since 2006, and... In the intervening time, his brother had spent the last two years of his presidency being really unpopular and presiding over an economic calamity and a disaster in the Middle East. So Bush came into that race 10 years after he'd left office and he raised a lot of money, had all of the contacts, but didn't have a great or close connection to where the party was. That is not true. Of Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis just a few months ago won in Florida, supposedly a swing state or formerly a swing state, by 20 points. He had his finger on the pulse during COVID. And I think he would be leading the pack if Donald Trump weren't around. The question I think we have to ask here is Is Donald Trump beatable? Not is Ron DeSantis an attractive candidate clearly he is. He's raising the money. He's invariably number two in the polls. He has shown in Florida uh, that he has instincts that line up with the base and that he can win independents and women and young people even. But is he able to beat Donald Trump? We don't know the answer to that. One thing I do know, which I'll finish with, is this. He needs that money to have a chance. That money is going to keep him in the race. As this becomes a war of attrition, as time goes by, As this becomes a grind, having all of that money to create a ground game, to run ads, to make his presence felt in the early states is going to matter. So you'd much rather have it than not.
1: Michael? Uh, He's not Jeb Bush, (laughs) for the reasons Charlie says, is that we don't have a previous unpopular president named DeSantis. And... Uh, you know, he's not running against a Clinton and there's not this, uh, foreboding sense that, you know, America's democratic politics is the plaything of a handful of families when you bring up his name. I, I think that makes a huge difference. Um, I agree with Charlie. He needs the money to compete with Trump because of Trump's incredible star power and ability to win free media. Um... Uh, I think, you know, Trump will turn it around on him and try to make him look like the candidate of the establishment. And let's be clear. He kind of is (laughs) like Trump. the, The DeSantis theory is that he can unite populists and the establishment. Right. That he can unite the party credibly. And that's why he would do better in a general election against Joe Biden than Donald Trump, who can't get you know, establishment oriented Republicans around him or, or the type of voter who feels themselves established in their own life, you know, upwardly mobile, suburban, you know, bread and butter Republican voters. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think it also helps reverse this sort of uh, stupid news media spin cycle of DeSantis' failing and flailing uh, that I think has been basically made up. Um, you know, it's 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 based all on these national polls that I think are worthless until we get out of the summer and get some real face-to-face contact between these competitors. Madeline?
2: Yeah, so I, I agree with Michael. Um, I think that, but, but where I disagree is perhaps that I think that the The media narrative that he's failing uh, DeSantis is failing is um, doing a lot of damage and I think this helps balance that out. Um, I think it's also it's always useful to look at how the Trump campaign responds to any DeSantis good news story and uh, and they are responding uh, with predictable defensiveness uh, saying his numbers, her fundraising numbers are are fake and as fake as his high-heeled boots I think (laughs) was the... uh, uh, the statement from the spokesman. So I, I'm i inclined to take this as, as encouraging. Um, it's it's not enough for the reasons Charlie mentioned, but uh, certainly much better to have these numbers than to not have them.
0: Yeah, so this is an admittedly ridiculous comparison that I've made today. But I, I do disagree with Michael. I don't think this media narrative is predicated on anything other than some real genuine missteps by this campaign insofar as this comparison is valid Jeb Bush spoke conservatism, the kind of conservatism that emerged in the mid-2010s as a second language, showed himself to be completely out of step with the base. But looking toward the moderates who elected primogenitor candidates for time immemorial, the, ba- the base vote that elected Mitt Romney, that elected, or, or the, uh, that handed the nomination to Mitt Romney and John McCain and what have you, and Ron DeSantis' campaign seems to be operating on the theory that they don't need those votes, and I think that's fa- that's flawed, and it might prove to be flawed if they don't correct. With that, let's turn to our final advertiser of the day, ExpressVPN. And look, it just doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. One thing that we as Americans can all agree on is that everyone has the right to express themselves freely, or at least that's what the courts have to decide now. Sadly, these days, it seems like big tech monopolies are more interested in pushing their views than letting you express yours. So to protect your independence, use expressvpn see these free to access tech giants aren't really free they make their money by tracking your searches video history and everything you click on they build a profile on you and then sell off your sensitive data to the highest bidder when you use the expressvpn app on your computer or phone you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your ip address that makes your activity much more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cybercriminals. What I like most about it is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider. So let's stop allowing big tech to compromise our free speech. Why not compromise their business model instead? By securing your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection, Visit expressvpn.com slash editors to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash editors, expressvpn.com slash editors. So let's move on to some lighter business. Madeline, you spent the holiday watching, uh, I think it's an Apple TV series?
2: Mm-hmm. Which yes, just, an
0: Apple TV seems to just be increasingly a venue with uh, just a... a, a art factory just producing yeah. great stuff after great
2: stuff so it's a thriller called Hijack and it's um, as you would expect about uh, a plane hijack I don't know why I let my husband convince me into watching this given my fear of flying but it, I have really been on the edge of the couch every episode um, and it's one of those things where you have to wait a week for the next episode so I was you know I was annoyed last night when it left on a on a cliff, cliffhanger but I highly recommend the series
0: Charlie, you have been blowing things up.
3: I have. I have. I had a very Florida, July 4th. I drove my golf cart around to a friend's house, and we set off a whole bunch of fireworks in the street while grilling hamburgers and drinking. So I would say that to some extent, I have assimilated into not just the United States, but in particular, North Florida. Brilliant.
0: Michael, you had a uh, similar July 4th experience?
1: Uh, well, a little different. Um, uh, Rich Lowry and I uh, attended uh, Megan Kelly's 4th of July party uh, at her uh, house, and um, she throws quite a bash. Um, one of the requirements or one of the requests she made was that Rich and I be wear- willing to wear costume Uh, which she provided, Uh, and about 20 of us put on a short play (laughs) about the revolution, including a dramatic reading of the Declaration of Independence at the end, uh, followed swiftly by red, white, and blue jello shots um, and a marching band and and quite a lot of other festivities. Um, You know, I was actually,
3: Michael, Thomas Jefferson loved red, white, and blue jello shots. (laughs)
1: <laughs> of course, I'm sure he did uh, Listen, it was actually it was a, Megan's a friend of uh, National Review um, She features many of us on her Podcast uh, And it was great to be surrounded by Her friends and lots of Patriotic people uh, Patriotic music And to, to kind of go all in On the celebration And it does uh, Actually touch your heart pretty deeply to do it uh, That way, to make it fun and boisterous and loud uh, and as American as possible. That does sound like a blast.
0: So I spent the July 4th holiday in deep in the Adirondacks, basically Canada. It's like a five and a half hour drive up there. Very limited cell, Wi-Fi only where you could catch it. And I know that's good for you in in sort of an academic sense, but it doesn't feel good for you in the moment. So if it's a mental health break... You know, the, the absolute uh, mania that overcomes you in the midst of this mental health break sort of be- betrays the uh, its failure to achieve its intended aims. But moving on to editor's picks, I'm going to go first because we were talking about this earlier and I want to claim it. It's Michael Brandon Doherty's Prevent College Debt, Don't Just Forgive It. It's on the website right now and it's a great piece on the vast bloat of the non-faculty administrative staff on campuses that are driving tuition increases. And, well, people have been writing about this for a long time and it's really important to, to make note of that. And also the completely unsustainable third-party payment mechanisms we've built up around the college process, which are just bloating its expenses. Uh, and Michael has many other interesting proposals in there. It's a very valuable read. Go check it out. Um, Michael, your pick, or if you have anything more to say on your piece,
1: Say. No, no more to say in the piece, but I'll, I'll I'm going to extend the favor back to you. Uh, my pick is your piece. The disinformation industry's jig is up uh, about the federal judge's ruling we talked about earlier. Uh, just a great overview of the issues and the evidence. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Michael. Charlie,
3: I'm going to take a magazine piece written by Matthew Continetti, called "Supply Side Still," which makes two key points. One, I'm quoting. The economy will be a major factor in the 2024 election. It's an issue on which Republicans and conservatives have the advantage. Pity they won't talk about it. Great point. I hope they start. Point two. Conservatives are still right about supply-side economics. Supply-side economics still matter. Supply-side economics are a terrific way of dealing with, say, a president who is uh, causing and presiding over and wishing away inflation maybe we could remember what it is that gave Republicans the large advantage on the economy that they retain. It's still there. You just need to talk about it and lean into it. That was a great piece. Madeline?
2: Uh, I enjoyed our editorial on Josh Shapiro's uh, betrayal of school choice. So that's my pick.
0: That was a fantastic editorial. You should go check them all out. They're on the website right now and will be throughout the weekend. But that is it for us. You have been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you to the absent, Rich Lowry. Thanks also to our advertisers, Made in Cookware, Bowlin Branch, and Express VPN, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.